What's going on, boys and girls? We have a terrific episode of Two White Lights for you today. We had the council on. Uh, Marcellus Williams and Joe Stanick joined us in a little coaches roundtable. So Steve obviously took the lead on this one, him being a prominent coach, joining Joe and Marcellus, and me not being a prominent coach. And I love this episode. It was terrific to be a part of, even though I didn't say a whole lot. It was fantastic. If you're a Two White Lights fan, if you're a coach, if you're an athlete, you are going to love this episode. It's informational and also entertaining as well. Um, so we get into some topics that Steve, Marcellus, and Joe are typically asked, like maximum recovery loads. Um, does every program or block start with an RP6? And the biggest challenges they face as coaches or what are the challenges that surrounds uh, coaches, especially top-level ones. Really interesting conversation there. Um, within that conversation towards the end of the podcast, we get into the Two White Lights Classic being pro-negativity, some shit talk as well. It's a perfect episode. I love being a part of it. I really uh, – it, it, it was a pleasure to record, and I know you guys are going to love it as well. Um, make sure you're subscribing to Two White Lights on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're leaving a five-star rating. Leave a review as well. Leave a five-star rating on Spotify. Subscribe on twowhitelights.com. And while you're on twowhitelights.com, check out the merchandise. We have Bad Journalism dropped. Original Logo Tee dropped. Off the Top Rope Tee dropped. And the Fight Night Tee dropped. And we're going to get those Steve DeNovi After Dark shirts and the PR City shirts very soon on the Two White Lights store as well. And don't forget those tumblers. Make sure you check it all out. Make sure you're subscribing. And without further ado, here it is. Two white lights. Oh, baby, I like it, bro. Yeah, baby, I like it, bro. Oh, baby, I like it, bro. Yeah, baby, I like it, bro. Shimmy, shimmy, y'all, shimmy, yeah, shimmy, yeah. Give me the mic so I can take it away. Off on the natural charge, bone for yards. Yeah, from the home of the Dodger Brooklyn squad. Who tank the hubbies on the swarm? Rain on the college ass disco bomb. But you didn't even touch my skill. You got the one to one. And as promised, we are here with some unofficial co hosts, one sponsored athlete. Three amazing coaches in the sport of powerlifting. I got Joe Stanek, Marcellus Williams, and of course, my co-host, Steve Denovi. And Steve, I'm just going to hand the ball off over to you because I'm the uh, person who clearly is the least knowledgeable, and you probably hear the least of me on this podcast. Um, on uh, what's going on with this podcast, this coaches roundtable. Yeah. One thing confused me, though. You introduced... Coaches and there's one sponsored athlete. What's Marcellus? Oh, I forgot your spot. I forgot if you're part of the show because I don't count myself as a sponsored athlete. <laughs> I'm counting myself as a sponsored athlete because this is the highest accolade I've ever had in powerlifting. You're wearing cutoff right now, so you're trying to show something. Yeah, off. I'm the only one showing guns that's confident enough. At Marcellus covered up because obviously he doesn't feel like uh, I don't want to make when I'm when I'm. I don't want to make my. No, I just want to make my fellow hosts kill themselves, man. I gotta, I gotta put the craft away sometimes, you know. I hit, I hit the rope tonight. I, it won't happen <laughs> if you do pop it off. I, I'm just surprised right. the farmer well, stand. I, I'm, I'm not wearing as many cut uh, cutoffs because I have a wicked farmer stand going. Uh, same. You're, you're, Thank you. Yeah, and and but Steve, you're shameless in that. So kudos to you, buddy. Yeah, 
turn I'm about I'm about to turn 35 and I golf. You got you got to embrace it. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Getting into it. Coaching roundtable. We got some fun. We've been wanting to do this for a while and we have an excuse now um, because shameless plug the corrupted summits coming up. So we wanted to do this somewhat of a promo. So a lot of our listeners, you might be tuning in to get some great information. Um, obviously the, the corrupted summit registration is over, but if you're interested in tuning into the live stream, which will be hosted by yours truly, Mr. Angelo Fortino um, and want the, entire video of the entire seminar, all the presentations, all the edits of all the lifts. Uh, Mark Harris, who's done a lot of uh, Marcellus's meet day work uh, with editing and, and videography, he's going to be recording everything. So we're going to have a high definition uh, uh, video of all of that. I mean, it's going to be probably three hours plus long, maybe four hours, because it's going to have all 45 to 60 minute presentations, um, all the lists throughout the day. So um, I, I know me and Marcel's, we both have that in our, in our uh, link in our bio on Instagram. So if you check that out, if you're interested, go ahead and do so. But that's going to be available to be able to purchase up until about 5 p.m. on Saturday. Um, after that, the live stream is no longer included. So you don't want to miss out on Angela on the live stream because there is zero plan for what he's going to talk about. He's just going to wing it. Um, and since it's private, he can say anything he wants. So this is this is like the true first like OnlyFans version of Two White Lights, I think. Yeah, I'm still oh, not Lord. sure exactly what I'm doing, but I can't wait for it. Yeah, I mean, and well unhinged. Full, yeah, fully unhinged. You can say anything you want because uh, I assume people who will pay for the live stream will cancel us. But will we hear Steve after dark? Is the question. Oh, you for sure will. You, <laughs> I mean, this is going to be me on the the live mics, not through the computer. Steve after dark originated on the in person mics, so mm. yeah, it's going to get it's going to get it's going to get hot and heated. I mean, we're in Houston, so I feel like it's gonna it's gonna be steamy. So, all right, we got a whole list of questions. No order to it. We're gonna see where this even takes us, but um, I'm gonna start off with uh, should you push to maximum recoverable volume for powerlifting or MRV? Joe, you can start us off. I mean, I'll I'll be honest. I think that it's not really something that I'm, I'm actively thinking about when I, I program. Um, I'm sort of just looking for what works right. Um, honestly, just a like standardized rate of progress is really all that I care about. I don't want to try to push so hard that I'm going to risk hurting somebody. Like the only time that I might change that up is maybe if we're in meat prep and we know from previous data that they uh, might progress just slightly faster with a, a little bit more volume. But generally speaking, once I kind of find something that works, I tend to stick with it until it doesn't. I'm not really looking to push them so hard that they just die out. Because uh, honestly, that just usually ends up with worse progress overall. They usually end up getting hurt. Um, it's not really something that I'm, I'm super worried about either way. It's just more like like who cares about what's maximally or minimally recoverable? I, I care more about what what works. Um, and I know that's a super unscientific answer, but you know that's just that's kind of where I live in terms of volume prescription. Yeah, I, I wanted to bring this one. I, I don't know if you guys get asked this. I probably every single time I do a Q and A, someone asks about MRV. 
And like you said, I've never once thought in terms of maximal recoverable volume, because frankly, in the, in the realm of squat and deadlift, that's a surefire way to end your powerlifting career, probably pretty soon. If you're actually training at maximal recoverable volume, I would say like in the, in the grand scheme of things, you have a minimum recoverable or minimum effective dose, maximum recoverable volume. Most people, especially on squat and deadlift are somewhere in the middle there. Uh, and we're never really even probably finding what their MRV is because that would take some probably pretty notable increases in volume to the point of like, we're, we're going to risk potential issues and significant setbacks that we never actually want to push that. Um, like you said, Joe, it's more of like, how, how are we finding some type of workload that is able, they're able to manage and progress and not like, what is the absolute maximum they can recover from? The only one I would say that I, I, I probably sometimes do push with certain lifters a bit more and like, know that like, okay, we're actually going to get to a level where I don't even know if we want to call it maximum recoverable volume, because when I think of MRV, I think of if we tip over that, we literally regress more so like, like, let's say the upper end of effective dose that's pushing towards your actual MRV. That's like the spot where like you, you can train and train effectively, but you, you have a lower baseline because of some type of mask of fatigue, but you can train under it for squat and deadlift. That doesn't last very long. If you try and do that, it's going to tip over really quick, but for bench, you can typically ride that for a little while. Um, and I might ride like for certain people that we, it's, it's like a plateau breaker. I don't want to say plateau breaker. It might just be what we do throughout the year as a strategy where it might be a couple blocks where I'm, I'm, I'm purposefully inducing a higher level stress knowing that strength is actually going to be at a lower baseline because fatigue is going to be masking it. And then once we pull back off of that, we're going to see a higher top. And so that might be from like a higher average intensity. It might be for more accessory work, knowing that that's just going to hold a higher level of fatigue. And then once we go to maybe more of a top set peak intensity and then uh, more of a back off approach model and then pull back accessory and average intensity, like we're going to see those top sets and like that peak level of strength kind of shoot up. Um, And even with that, I probably only do that with more like, highly advanced lifters um, because it, there's, there's just so many other strategies you can use with other people, but for squat and deadlift, I, I think that's a, that's just a really dangerous thing to even worry about. I, I just to kind of piggyback off that thought and expand a little bit more on what I said, it's almost like with the, with the lower body stuff, not only is that risky, it's almost, it's almost a waste of time, right? Like why, why try to find out where the absolute limit is if you can just see somebody's progressing and, and ensure that that progress is consistent. You know, it, it's, it's not something that you want to play around with, especially when it carries that level of risk. Um, and yeah, to your point, like certainly bench press can, can handle more, but even, even with bench, uh, unless you're, you know, Angelo, um, you know, and your bench and your bench is super stubborn. Uh, it, it's just, it's not necessarily worth it unless you're just like super duper advanced. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really just about finding, finding what's consistently effective without hurting someone. Yeah. It's never, I always tell people like all my clients, especially, especially clients like Ashton, it's like, it's never what we can do. It's what we can recover from. And at the end of the day, let's be real, even finding your match volume, that's something that changes week to week because your life circumstances change, your stress levels change, your eating's not always perfect. Your sleep's not always perfect. Um, and like you said, it's just, it's just too risky. It's like, you're always on that fine line of, okay, if we just, if we do a little bit too much, or if we just under recover a little bit, then like you said, you're at that point of stalling or even regressing. Whereas if you're in that middle ground that like, like you know, I like calling it max adaptative volume. So we're between minimum effective and max power volume, then you're going to always have wiggle room. 
is like, oh, hey, sorry, coach, I didn't get the best sleep this week. It's okay. We, we have wiggle room to recover from that. Um, and then the fact, like, I always tell people with any choice you make with your programming, you always have to weigh the, the pros versus the cons. I can't think of any objective reason to ever train their master for volume, because if you want to make the argument that you might progress a little bit faster, I, I don't even think that's necessarily true. Because at the end of the day, the rate of progress is always based upon what you can recover from. And if you're always in that mass recovery volume, I don't think you'll actually progress faster if you do somehow manage to recover from it because your body's always like under that constant state of fatigue. Whereas just pull back a little bit and have more of that room, I think you'll get more out of the workload that you do. Yeah. And something the way that I all conceptualize it to people sometimes, right, is, you know, if we have like a, a curve that like measures progress, right? Um, that area under the curve, you know, at the very like, you know, peak of, of that, the summit of that, there's maybe an optimal rate of progression um, that's also like lower injury risk. But on either side of that, that curve, there's two places where you'd progress at the same rate where one just has a much higher injury risk, whereas one's much lower depending on the amount of, of volume that you're doing, but you're progressing at the exact same rate. You want to live somewhere in that like left hand to... Uh, upper portion of that parabola in terms of where you're at consistently. And I think you're just going to make way better progress that way. Uh, Cause again, like, sure, maybe you make a little bit more progress in the short term, but you know, as soon as you step into that area where stress levels are high and you don't have the ability to overcome that potential deficit and recovery that happens with life and living in general, uh, that's where your injury risk goes way up. And then sure, maybe you made a little bit of progress, but now you're hurt and you aren't going to make any progress for who knows how long. Yeah. Yeah. No, like the last thing I'll say on it is like, that's why you have to have kind of a long-term plan with it. Um, because like you said, even if you get, even when that happens, right. If, if a client suddenly catches a wave of momentum and they're just strong and they're smashing PR after PR, I'll let us ride that wave for like, you know, it, let's say it happens in a block. I'll just ride that wave for another block or two. But even then I do think there's a point where you should be like, okay, we're going to pull you back. Not like even before you get to that point of feeling over fatigue or like that, because it's like, you're good until you're not. Right. Um, so having that plan of progression is important. It just makes your training more predictable, too, if you're not pushing near massive of volume or even the opposite extreme. I, I mean, I don't know any powerlifters out here trying to use minimum effective volume. Most people try to progress as fast as possible, but neither extreme is very predictable. Yeah, it's funny. We were, we were talking a little bit um, before we started recording uh, about that idea of like, you know, is there a point where if somebody's progressing really, really well that you have to pull them back? And I would. Argue, yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you bring, uh, you know, the soft tissue into the equation, which is definitely a, a big concern considering the repetitive patterns that we go through with powerlifting. Um, you know, you might be getting super duper strong. And a lot of people always think like, okay, I'm riding this huge wave. There's, there's no end to it. There, there might have to be, because you might get to a point where you you're just so much stronger, you know, all your volume that you were doing weeks ago, those sets are now, you know, how many kilos heavier, uh, but you're doing the same number of sets and reps. That's a ton more, uh, tonnage. Um, and that's, that's something that like, I've, I've been trying to pay attention to a little bit more as I've gotten better at coaching is, is looking at that sort of tonnage range that they, they live in, uh, not so much for like the old adage where like that used to be what we would all care about in terms of, uh, making progress. Like they have to be doing so much volume. Um, but I, I do pay attention to how much tonnage, uh, an individual is, is using week to week. And I'll try to make a note like, okay, you know, in the past, if we've creeped beyond this, that's kind of where we need to shut it down and, and pull them back because there's a good chance that they might end up hurting themselves. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely with respect to like that, those volume levels and things like that, you almost have to 
like be smart enough to be like, let's, let's pull back here because if we keep going, there's a good chance we'll get hurt. And that can be for, as actually a, the discussion I was having with Sean um, lately, because a lot of things, I think when a lot of people think of progressing fast, they think of novice lifters. Um, I think we see that often too, with uh, even an advanced lifter who uh, moves up a weight class after a long time at a specific weight class. Now we're gonna have to see who knows how Sean's going to do if he, when he ramps up to 90 kilos, but the kind of discussion we had, like, okay, if you, if you hit this huge spurt after, after being at 85 kilos, since you were 16 years old, um, I forget exactly what he had mentioned to me, but, um, I basically said that, like, we don't have to change much of what your actual program is. Um, all yeah. you're going to do within your program is now recover better. The main yeah. thing we've got to do is just have some type of cap, um, with weekly or with block progression. Like, let's say over time, let's say his squat was going to go up 15 kilos with this change. Like, let's say that in a, in a year's time is going to go up 15 kilos. I think that's a reasonable expectation that, that could plausibly happen if he responds really well to this weight increase. Well, basically what I said is we're not trying to get 15 kilos in one block. We're trying to get 15 kilos over a year, which is eight to 10 blocks. So if that's yep. two and a half kilos, every single block, the goal is like, okay, let, let's say you hit, uh, if you hit before you hit, let's say 270 for four. Um, the goal the next time we do fours is to be able to chip that by two and a half to five kilos. And if it's a lower RPE than we even planned on it, that's completely fine. Um, much like the Johnny Candido talks about all the time. I know Joe, you're kind of talking or at Marcellus, you were talking about this, but Joe, you were too. Marcellus is kind of talking about with the accessory work and backing off is like not actually programming accessory work based off of the actual top sets, but just basing it off of two and a half kilo jump increment from the last time you did a certain rep range. Um, just to manage that because not only in the, in the sense of injury risk, but in the sense of, uh, micro dosing, uh, increases in workload and milking every single micro dose you can like yes. why all of a sudden jump six sets on squats when you could add one set and be able to milk that for everything it's worth and then add another set milk everything for it's worth, and so on and so forth this could this could go through multiple permutations what i'm talking about but milk every mm -hmm. single aspect of stress increase as much as you can before wanting to do more that'll actually in my corrupted summit talk on bench frequency that's one of the biggest things i'm going to talk about is like milk it like you do not need to go to six days a week benching because so and so does it when you're at three days like milk every single amount of progress you can from the current structure you're using and slowly let that build up because you'll be surprised how quick that build up actually will happen over time it'll seem like it's very slow but then you'll look back over two years and be like holy cow i went from three days to five days benching um, I went from 12 sets to 24 sets and it feels like it was overnight yet. It was a very strategic, slow gain over a two year process. Yeah. It, you and know, less. Oh, sorry. Go uh, ahead. Marcellus. Oh, I was going to say, I was going to say less is more. It's like, that's why I think one, it's important to have a plan for the actual macro cycle duration and then have a plan of progression within that. Right. Like obviously we let the client auto regulate to a degree, but it's like, you know, Steve used the example of sets. I use the example of weights. If it's like, okay, if I'm just increasing back downs, like two and a half to five kilos every week within a block. And then when I start a new block, I just start two and a half, five kilos here in the last block. And I keep doing that increase. If I'm getting stronger, my top end's going up. Why change? I think a lot of people they are making this progress and they think, okay, well, I'm making this type of progress. So now I'm going to increase even more and that'll be progressing even faster. It's like, no, it's just, you're just going to have a higher fatigue cost now. It's like, if you're progressing this way, what's the point of adding an additional 20 pounds to your back down sets what you did the previous week, other than just to say you did it, right? 
Um, and that's why having even like that macro cycle duration is important because if I, if I tell a client, okay, Hey, we're going to do a six block macro cycle. We'll do two blocks of triples, two blocks of doubles, two blocks of singles. Let's say after that second block of singles, I know that, okay, we definitely have some, some room left in the tape to push. Um, because the lows that we hit weren't even right at that actual RP. Okay. Let's push for one more block, really try to maybe get closer to the RP eight, nine, whatever it may be and see how it goes. But after that, it's like, okay, shut it down. You can't just keep going because you're going to hit that wall. And then you, you don't deal with injury. You might start to actually deal with that overreaching regression, getting back to what we're talking about as far as max recoverable volume, because the body gets to a point where it's like, it can only adapt so quickly. You can yeah. only keep increasing workload like that so quickly. I'll, I'll actually use, uh, use Angelo as an example since he's, he's on the call. Um, so something that we've talked about in our, our coach client confidentials is that, you know, during, during the lead up to the, the, uh, Arnold, the Virginia pro, like we were dealing with a lot of hip issues. And, and part of that was a rate of progression issue. It was, it was that, um, you know, we were kind of progressing in, in certain ways that was unsustainable. And that ultimately led to some discomfort in his hip and him not really being able to push things. The biggest change that I have made to his training, especially as of recently with how well, uh, deadlifts been going with how well squats been going is making sure that that rate of progression is more controlled consistently on the days that I know he's going to be touching heavy weight because that mm -hmm. is, that's going to allow him to milk that out a lot longer without having to worry about that discomfort coming back up. And Angelo, obviously I, you know, would say, would say this to you as, as we go, you know, it, once we get to the point where we're hitting those, those PRs consistently, again, we're probably going to pull it, pull it back a little bit and just kind of try to build up again, because I would rather, you know, you hit those, those little PRs and stack them over and over again. Sure. It's a little bit more of a delayed gratification sort of a thing, but if it means you being able to consistently hit all these PRs at small increments and get stronger without having to deal with discomfort in major ways, that's a huge win. And I, I think a lot of people almost get greedy with it, right guys? Like, I don't know about you guys, but when like an athlete's just on a tear they, you know, they, they don't want to, they don't want to stop. They, they, there's, there's no end to it. And, you, and sometimes it is your job as the coach to like, not, not even just like talk them down. It's, it's just like, you put your foot down and say, no, we have to, we have to pull back now because the, the end of that is not going to go well. No, absolutely. And, I mean, that's a big, that's a big part of why a lot of my clients will notice like, you know, of course, we use RP caps on a lot of their secondary days, right? And I might let them push the final secondary days of the block a little bit harder. But on their primary days, I often will use percentage of one rep max for back down volume instead of percent drops. And I do that exactly so I can specifically control how much they're pushing those back downs. Even if their top set in from one week to another jumps super high, that's fine because I still hear your back downs are only going up by like two, four percent from the previous week. Yep. And that, that was one of the that was one of the questions and I think we're kind of getting into it is percentage versus RP and the best times to implement. And there, at least in the sense of managing progression, there's, there's a lot of ways you can do it. And you could, you could go as simple as saying it, let's say you have a lifter who's progressing so fast that everything is percentage based to control progression, except for one top set a week. You could get to that. You could say, I'm only going to allow one day a week to progress. And then the other two or three days, I'm going to do percentage based based off of a set max that we're, not actually going to allow to progress over two to three blocks while that singular day progresses. And that, that could go, there's so many different ways you could be able to kind of allocate that to be able to use RPE versus percentage to control progression there. Yeah. When I yeah. think of maximal, a perfect example for, well, when I oh think of maximal oh, ahead, load, <laughs> I think of just not blowing your load too early, you know, yeah. like yeah. you don't want to uh, very scientific. I mean, it's more, it's more, it's easier said than done. I'm sure we've all been there, but <laughs> I mean, right. You want to save it. 
hold off on it. Milk it for all it's worth and then actually find that when it's important. Not meat day or at the end of block. That's what I'm getting out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Mid block, yeah. like mid block, start just thinking something that is just kind of a, a little off. Like think, think about, about your 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 I'm about Angelo, and that really kind of slows me down. <laughs> Bull, bullshit. The bullshit that, that slows, slows you down. me down and really allows me to kind of settle down. That's and really when you overshoot, Steve. And really, Ch- Cheris, and I'm so sorry. Kinda... <laughs> That's when you overshoot, Steve. You overshoot That's when you not... think about me. That's when you go above your RPE. That's when that's when your program's over. That's when that's when you ruin uh, your progress. That's when it's over for you. But yeah. Lord. Um well with that with that lovely thought in our heads. Speaking uh, of blowing sorry, loads, sorry. hold on, speaking of blowing loads, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about holding it in. It's hard to do it when you're talking about Leflar Bros. Go to LeflarBros.com and get yourself the best powerlifting merchandise in the sport. Use promo code 2WL15. And you're gonna get yourself looking good from head to head. <laughs> Joe is losing it. I was doing so well with this. You guys are fucking CB's up. CB's gonna be so happy about this. Which speaking a, of speaking one of my of, best segues. CB's not messaged me. Someone sent me proof that they sent CB feet picks. It happened finally. Someone oh sent CB feet picks and they sent me proof. Oh my god! I, again, again, we're talking about blowing loads early. It's hard not to when you look at Leflar Bros merchandise, head to toe, making you look good. <laughs> Hats, tank tops, comp shirts. Um, I mean, the fashion tees that they're dropping are looking great, uh, good as well. The socks, they make you look good on the platform, off the platform, in the gym, out the gym. They're fantastic. Best powerlifting merchandise. Make sure you're visiting on Instagram. Follow them on Instagram. Use promo code 2 15 and ORC15. Buy something all over the place. You got so much to choose from. Use those promo codes. All right. We got through it, gentlemen. We got through it. That was okay. good. That was good. That's well, that's the energy we're bringing to this podcast. Segway, segway of the year, I think. Or ad read of the year, I think. Was I, don't even, I don't even know where we're at, so we'll just get to a new question. That one was going special places anyways. So We always go special places when yes. we're all together, guys. Yeah. That's true. That is true. Um, All right. Should every block begin at RPE six? And I'm actually very interested to hear what Joe has to say, because I kind of wonder if something I may have done slightly influenced Joe's thought here. Well, I'm going to start with Marcellus because we started with Joe last time. (laughs) Good podcast. um, uh, You're welcome. (laughs) Fake you out. No, the, uh, The, the answer the answer is no. Every block doesn't have to start at RP6. I oftentimes start a lot of blocks at RP5, especially because I use like a wave loading type of method. So I don't I don't typically do traditional deloads unless they're like absolutely necessary. Like it's the end of a macro cycle. We push really hard. The body's feeling banged up. Then, you know, we'll pull back on volume intensity. But typically what I do is your week one is just going to feel relative deload from your last week of the previous block. Um but like the, the volume will be about the same, but like, you know, the intensity will be lower. The percentages where it maxes the RPE. So I might typically start things around like RP five, especially in regard to the squad and the deadlift, uh, the bench, I often will start around RP six, but once again, that depends on how somebody recovers from intensities. Um, I might even start them around RP five there. And then in other, in other cases, I find that, and this is with a few select clients, but we might actually start their blocks around like RP7. I think a lot of people have the mindset that it has to be like, you know, 
if it's like a typical 40 block RP six, seven, eight, nine, or five, six, seven, eight, but I have some clients where it'll be like RP, you know, six, RP seven, the second week, RP seven, the third week, and then maybe RP eight, the fourth week. A lot of it just depends on what type of lows they have to touch to keep their stimulus up. I have a few clients who are on their bench. If we touch anything below an RP seven, their bench just takes immediately. Like they're, they're, what they can respond to intensity wise isn't great. So it might be something like, RP seven week one, RP seven week two, RP eight week three, RP nine week four. Um, and that's if it's a, a four week long block. But to answer the question, no, it doesn't have to start at RP six, but typically speaking, the reason why you'll probably see a lot of blocks start with that lower exertion is the fact that the whole purpose of RP is to help guide objective loads while keeping recovery in mind. If we're, you know, starting a block with say RP eight or RP nine, in most cases, it's always exception, but if you start a block like RP eight or even like RP seven, it's kind of like, well, where does that leave you as far as room to go, right? Like if you hit RP8 week one and it's a certain objective load, are you gonna be able to come in and beat that for three more weeks after that, you know? So psychologically, I think it just kind of helps to let that know, let the lift know, hey, this is kind of like a pullback week, pivot week, deload, wave loading, transition, just kind of taking it easy and then you kind of build momentum from there. So um, Marcellus, I will, I will challenge you just a little bit there because I do think in certain situations uh, having like a, a very high start to a block can be helpful. Um, I, like something that comes to mind is like the way that RTS does things, right? Like they pretty consistently are programming, at least from what I've seen, relatively heavy singles, right? Um, and while I don't think that applies to the majority of people that I program for, there are certainly people that you, you mentioned bench press, um, my, my one girl, Denise, shout out Denise. Um, she's got a crazy arch and very little range of motion. And I find consistently to get her bench to adapt, it's got to be somewhere in that RPA range. Um, and, you know, mind you, this might be part of being, you know, a 48 kilo girl, but because, because her one rep max isn't, you know, super duper high compared to some others. Um, and she has such little range of motion. She just kind of needs that stimulus on the top end in order to progress properly. And she's able to kind of keep it around that RPE eight range for multiple weeks, but still add load. Um, so I, I don't, I, I'll piggyback onto that point. I don't think you need to start at RPE six, um, for, for several people. Um, at the same time, I, I, I think, you know, there, there's probably people that need to kind of live in that lower RPE range for the majority of the block to see gains. Like we already talked about how, you know, the, the stimulus from the back downs is kind of the thing that we're using to milk progress in the first place anyway. But there are some people that just do not handle very high RPEs well at all. And it would probably be, you know, more in your best interest to keep the top sets lower in intensity because at the end of the day, while they are kind of a skill practice aspect, um, they're not the thing that is driving progress the most. They're, they're kind of the, the way to show that it's happening more than the yeah. thing that's actually making you progress. So like something that I said off, off camera is I've been playing around with more like exponential progression models with people where, you know, maybe we start at RP five and we stay there for, you know, two weeks at a time. And then we go up to like a six and then we'll, we'll go all the way up to an eight for the last week of the block. Um, I, I don't know, just in, like somebody who's like really poorly leveraged for squats, for example, I've, I've used that successfully in a couple people like that. And they make consistent progress that way because they're not getting all of this crazy fatigue from hitting heavier and heavier squats every single week. They're, they're relatively close, but they're still indicative of progress. And I think that personalizing that to a lifter is one of the things that it's our job as coaches to kind of, kind of figure out. I'm not saying that everybody's this special snowflake that needs 
amazingly complicated progression models, but you know, those outliers, I, I would argue as coaches, people come to us because they are at a point where as an outlier, they get that respect. Yeah. All right. I'm very passionate about this subject. Oh boy. And I'm, I'm passionate because RPE six is not the start of the RPE chart. I'm going to, I'm going to frame this for you and let me know if this sounds off of percentages, like a reasonable block structure. Let's say we had five weeks and someone had five sets of five on a day. This is very bland. Week one was 70% five by five. Week two was 72 and a half. Week three was 75. Week four was 77 and a half. Week five was 80%. Does that sound like a reasonable percentage block structure? Absolutely. Okay. If we're using a standardized percentage chart to RPE, that was a four, five, six, seven, eight RPE progression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if I told you, would you use a four, five, six, seven, eight RP progression? Does that sound a bit weird? A little bit. Most most people it does. That's what. But, that, but that's the key, Steve. Don't don't say RP three. Just say, hey, I want you under this RP five cap, and then boom, so, you're good. This is where I think, and where I think it comes into play, and why this has happened is pretty much anything below a six is extremely hard to know what it is, and Correct. that is that is one hundred percent effect. And there's an easy way to fix that is one, you use percentages until you get to a certain RPE so that you basically manage load progression for the first week or two until you get to the RPEs that are actually like manageable to build a predict. Or like for me, I'll put, I, I use RPE three and four all the time. Not all the time, not for everyone, but I, I, especially with an elongated block structure, I use it. I mean, an example, and Joe knows this, um, Nico. Nico starts at RPE three and four on his squat and his deadlift on some days. And we have a very elongated block structure. I do not expect Nico to know what an RPE three and four is, nor do I expect him to be able to rate that appropriately. What I am doing is saying, this is the general intensity I want you to be at and just conceptualize kind of what that means. And here is a range. Rather than just giving him a percentage, I give him a 10 kilo range of 220 to 230 at four RPE. And I let him know the assumption is you're just going to take 225. That's the percentage base for RPE that you're going to take. If you're feeling better than you normally feel, maybe go a little bit higher. And I don't expect you to actually truly hit a four RPE. It's more of just kind of the idea of the block progression concept that I want you to be able to understand. So that's where I think people mistake is that under six RPE 100% exists, but being able to actually rate and find under six RPE is darn difficult. So anything under yeah. a six, you're likely either going to one, not you're going to need to give a range or two, maybe if it's even pretty low, like a three or a four, you're going to do an actual percentage because there's no way they're going to find an actual three or four. But those do exist, because like I said, if you think 70, 72.5, 75, so on in a five uh, rep structure seems reasonable. I literally just listed a four, five, six, seven, eight RPE structure. And one sounds exactly like what you do. And the other one sounds like, oh, that's way too low of an RPE. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes back down to once again, remembering that the RPE is a tool to help guide low progression. That's really what we're, what we're looking at. Right. And it's not to say that like, you know, because some people say, oh, if you're making progress, you've never hit like an RPE eight or nine. That's not, that's not bad, which I get that mindset. Right. It's like the weight's going up, the weight's going up. But I do think there's merit in knowing what an actual RPE eight or nine feels like, especially if you're trying to milk out the max amount of weight you can do on the platform. However, with that being said, it's like if, you know, if by the end of the block we hit, you hit like a 10 kilo PR on something, right? 
even if it didn't even felt like under the RP eight or nine, that's not necessarily a bad thing when it comes to overall progression. Right. And that, that's like you said, Steve, the Rangers are great. That's something that, you know, you just did that video over that. That's something I've been talking about for the past uh, two, three years, as far as set the range. It's just so you're putting the client about where you want them to be objective load wise. And if it actually feels like you said, you know, I literally just had a client literally just yesterday be like, yeah, you know, week one went really well. The primary days moved well. Honestly, this felt more like RP three than like a five. Like that'll be okay. Like you're where you need to be range wise, and that's what we care about. Yeah, I think personally, I think that that ranges plus RP is is kind of like the the missing piece that a lot of people uh, just don't see with their with their programming. I, I think that um, don't get me wrong, we're all experienced lifters. We all have the the ability to more or less you know, feel where, where your limit is on the day. Right. But being able to consistently continue that momentum into the weeks is, is what matters more. Right. And a lot of people are always like, what is the, what is the absolute best that I can do on the day? There's no future. There's no past. There's only this moment with what I'm, I'm loading on the barbell right now. And because of that mentality, oftentimes they fizzle out early in blocks. So yeah, having having that range tool in place. Plus, like let's face it, when when people hit like that top end of the range, they feel pretty good about it, you know. And then then you're able to just get that that like sort of psychological feeling of momentum, which I'll say is probably another like hidden variable that as coaches, I'm sure we all kind of consider too, right? Like you know, you can, you can maybe risk it all and have somebody go for like an all-time PR early in the block, but you know, is it, is it worth it if it doesn't go great? No. And to go with this too, because again, I'm not saying everyone should be doing RP4, but what I'm saying is that- What do you mean, Steve? That should not be something that is taboo to do. And it, it, and how you can kind of conceptualize this of like why you may be doing that early in the block is I, is adaptation before overload. What is someone, and I look at most of the, 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 the early block adaptations to be based off of uh, workload and volume and exercise selection. And that allows you to then overload to allow intensity later in the block to be what is not only an overloading factor, but the adaptations for the next block to carry into. Because you're, you're never stopping creating adaptations. It's more of how I can kind of conceptualize most of my block structure is that earlier in the block volume is the main adaption tool. And then later in the block, intensity is the main adaption tool. And both are overload because maybe there's an overload of volume in the beginning of the block that allows the intensity to ramp up. But then the intensity is the overload that creates the adaptation for the volume in the next block. That makes sense. They, they continue to intertwine each other. What's that um, called? Trying... Phase potentiation? <laughs> yeah. You can call it, yeah. Periodization. And it's also periodization too. To an extent, but that's kind of why I'm looking at it. And everyone's different. Some people can handle higher RPEs throughout a block. And that goes back to the video I made on controlling top set progression. Some people are going to be handling pretty like very consistent RPEs throughout. It might be seven, seven, eight, eight and a half, nine or something. And some other ones really need longer jumps. Like I have one lifter, Nicholas. Um, he makes, he has a four week block structure for the uh, four week block structure. And for squat, he typically makes 15 kilo jumps a week. Um, and he, he squats a decent amount. I mean, he squats 305 or 305 kilos. I think he's what he hit at national. So he squats a lot, but he makes 15 kilo jumps a week and it's his golden ticket. He literally has it to a science. Like he actually has a whole separate tab that he tracks the exact like percentage progression. And he plans out his jumps for every single block. Even though I give him RPE and ranges, he plans it out and like clockwork. It's the same every block and works out perfect. 
and he needs that. We've tried other things and he, he, he fizzles out too soon. And so it starts out super low RPE. It's like deload weights. And then it really ramps up to where, and so everyone's different because then you've got other people who, who maintain pretty high RPEs every single week um, and need that because in some manner, they need that intensity stimulus say hi. Yeah. I've noticed uh, with, with Angelo, for example, like he was, he was telling me how some of the weights that uh, he like had suggested for the early part of this block kind of felt a little bit heavy for the RPEs. Um, but I, I was, t- I was like looking over some of the history with his blocks and I've noticed that if we start too, too light with him, his, his rate of progression will kind of fizzle a little bit earlier than I want it to, which is why I sort of backendedly suggested some higher loads to you, this, uh, this training block, just to confirm that theory, Angelo. Um, but like, I think, I think the trap that a lot of people run into here as well with like, uh, like discounting, um, lighter weights at the beginning of the block too, is that they are so like wrapped up in, um, you know, we, we always have to be like progressing in the exact same way week to week. And, and the reality is, is that people can progress in a number of different ways. Like I, I mentioned off camera uh, that I've been playing around with this idea of just kind of leaving the back downs the same uh, from week to week for certain people, myself included, now that I'm doing my own programming and it's the best progress that I've ever made. And, you know, you wouldn't think under like the, the traditional, like, Oh, add two and a half kilos every, every week. You wouldn't think that that would be something that could work, but honestly, there's a, Steve, you touched on this before. There's a million different ways to overload things. Um, and starting out from a, a good point consistently is, is always where you have to, to begin with training. And then it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter so much, um, that you do so consistently across the board, as long as it's what what works for you, right? Um, like you don't have to be at the same increment constantly. You don't have to be at the same rate of progression every single week, as long as it's planned out properly. Um, and you're getting a stimulus that in, in elicits progress on the top end. Well, I mean, shoot the biological law of accommodation. You can grow off the same stimulus for like a few weeks at a time without changing anything. So yeah. yeah. Look at bodybuilders. They, they're, they're one of the things that people always like talk about with bodybuilders is they're not great with progress. They use the same loads all the time, but you know, maybe, maybe we need to take a page out of that book sometimes, especially when you're a little bit more advanced. Maybe, maybe you don't want to try to force that two and a half kilos onto the bar this week. Maybe it's just not time yet. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you had an athlete who maybe they've had like, let's say like a six month span where life was rough and they really didn't do anything special in training. It was just kind of the same things over and over. And then as soon as life is good, they ramp it up and like, whoo, it just, things yeah. fly. Mm-hmm. It's not because what you're doing now all of a sudden is working. It's because exactly. you're seeing that six months of continued training building up to the, the right timing for them to be able to actually prioritize training, how they need to, to actually like elicit that strength. But it, it, the adaptations and the, the progress from those six months of just kind of like bleh, training were still happening. It yeah. was still doing something. Yeah, I, w- I would argue that there's there's a lot of instances where powerlifters out there, just because let's face it, very, very few of us have the ability to, um, you know, treat our whole life around powerlifting. Those of us that can are, are very, very lucky, but a, a lot of a lot of people like they have real jobs, they have families to take care of. Um, you know, they, they have a lot of other responsibilities that don't have to do with, with powerlifting. And, uh, sometimes that just masks adaptions. A, a lot of the times I'll, I'll see lifters just not make progress simply because their, their ducks are not in the row outside of the gym. And sometimes that's just not controllable. Yeah. All right. Next one. 
Uh, let's see which one I want to get to. Oh, I, like, I like this one. Some of the biggest challenges to being a full-time coach. Ooh. And, and I'll start with that one. Um, because I think all, honestly, I think all three of us have a pretty good perspective here because we all come from different backgrounds, but none of us, I mean, Marcellus, I'm trying to say this in the nicest way. None of us are overly impressive as lifters. Marcellus is obviously by far the strongest of all of us, but none of us were like national champions per se that got famous from being super strong and then was able to leverage off the coach, which historically has been like the way you become a powerlifting coach. And, and I would consider mm-hmm. us part of the new breed that our coaching is what has elevated us to where we are and not necessarily our lifting. Albeit Marcellus can kick all of our butts any day of the week. Um, so just some, I made a couple of lists here of some of the biggest challenges of being a full-time coach. Um, I mean, this could go on for a while and there's a reason I made a three and a half hour YouTube part two video on this. But one of the biggest challenges to being a full-time coach is the current cost. Yes. Barring, mm-hmm. I mean, cause like before, like for me, my, my, like you can say my tipping point of when I went from not just being a full-time coach, but to like being able to like make this an actual living outside of the fact that I would say I've, I've talked about my wife is able to support us, but if she wasn't there, I can actually make a living now. Before Sean, I could not. I had just as many athletes than them. I was full before I started coaching Sean. What Sean allowed was for me to be able to reach a broader audience, continue to increase demand to where I can charge $250 a month and people don't bat an eye. And I, I can't remember the last time someone asked how much my coaching costs. Like, it's just if people reach out to me, they're reaching out to me willing to pay whatever it is versus pre-Sean. I didn't have that. I think I was charging like $125 and I, I that was my, I, I could probably charge more, but I don't know how much I could not have charged $250. I just didn't have the demand there. Um, and so probably one of the biggest challenges to becoming a full-time coach is the fact that barring you're one of those top elite people in the sense of not just, I mean, I don't want to discredit the fact that we're all great coaches, but one of the things that we're known for is just being more well-known unless you're more well-known the cost of coaching doesn't really allow you to be a full-time coach in my opinion and actually make a living that's sustainable. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that, I mean, you, you guys know this cause we, we talk about this, but like um, I think one of the things that's been been particularly challenging is just because of, you know, retention um, it's, it's been harder to, you know, make the, the living that I, I need to, support myself because a lot of these people are, yeah, they're paying, they're paying my old rates and I'm, I'm super happy that they've stuck with me that long. Um, but it's just like, yeah, it's, it's really, really hard to, uh, get point for a lot of coaches out there where they're able to get to what I would argue is, is like the, the, um, optimal work range for clients, right? Like, let's face it. We would all be better coaches if we only had 20 people. You know, like if we had a, a roster of 20 people, we'd all be better coaches compared to than if we were at 30, 40, whatever. Um, and that's just, at least in the current landscape, it just doesn't seem like that's unfortunately uh, going to happen for most coaches for a while. Um, a lot of, a lot of power lifters, when uh, they see the the price of top end coaching, I've, I've seen like discussions and in, like Instagram posts and stuff like that, where the, they're just like, Oh, that's, that's too much. That's too much. But it's just like, you go over to bodybuilding and people don't bat an eye at $400 a month. They'll be like, Oh, that's cheap. You know? Um, so there, there needs to get to a 
it needs to get to a point where um, the value needs to be seen more in what we do consistently. And part of that's just going to be a cultural change. Part of that's going to be um, just the the standard of practice when it comes to coaching. Um, and in, until that is the norm and not the exception, I, I don't know that that's going to be something that we see more regularly, unfortunately. Yeah. And something I've had this discussion with all three of you, one of my goals in why I continue to charge more and I will be charging over $300 by some point next year is not because necessarily I need a lot more money. Does it, is it hurt that you make more? No, that's not the reason though. My single biggest reason because I could stay at my threshold now and be very happy lifestyle wise. If I don't and Marcellus and Joe do not increase our prices, the people who are in sense tiered below us cannot increase their prices. Not increase theirs. Yep. Yeah. So, and that's honestly, I actually really do think it's already made a difference because I know of a lot of coaches who I, I really think it are kind of a level that would have been charging a hundred or less two or three years ago now can charge 150 to 175 because me and Marcellus are charging 250. If me and Marcellus are charging 300 to 350, they can now charge 200. And at about that 200 range with like 30 to 40 to maybe 50 clients, you can actually be a full-time coach and support a family. Yep. Um, and that's one of my things is, again, I, I for the sake of the sport as a whole, the, the coaches who have the opportunity to be able to increase their prices have to do it so that more coaches can be full-time. And guess what happens when more coaches are full-time? We have more good coaches because- We're higher quality standards, yep. Is if we don't do this, we're going to have like the coaches that everyone knows be able to sustain this as a living, but the other ones are going to do it for two or three years and realize I, I can't make this like my life. I'm going to have to shift into something else and we're going to have too many people cycle through. So uh, it has to just, it just simply has to be something where it has to get to a sustainable rate where people can actually make this a career so that people can truly be full-time coaches and not have to own a gym or not have to be a personal trainer on the side or not have to bartend at night or not have to have a full-time job as an engineer and then they coach at night or whatever it may be like they, they can, they can hop into it and have a work or a client base of 20 to 30 and already be making somewhat of a living. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I know, I know for me that um, when I raised my prices this year from like the 150 to 200 range to 200 to 250 range, almost every um, coach who's like, you know, who's a client who's like who's also a coach. They then like within a few months of that, were able to raise their prices and it was totally fine. So it, it's definitely a trickle down effect. And I'm in the same boat as you. So I was actually talking to, um, I was picking up a client from the airport earlier today. We were talking about on the way back where he's like, hey, do you think you would raise your prices again? I said, if I did, I, the only reason would be because I know if I don't, then other coaches who are, like you said, on a lower tier can't raise theirs. Because um, in terms of finances, I'm, I'm fine and comfortable with how much I'm making currently. But it's it comes down to elevating coaching, which elevates the sport. I really do think that's a big make or break for this. I mean, because let's be real, man. We still, <laughs> you still have coaches out here um, you know, regardless of what they're charging, not responding back to their clients, being late on blocks, so on and so forth. And like you said, Joe, I, I really think that's a big part of why a lot of people don't want to pay a certain amount. Um, a lot of my clients, when they talk to their friends about like how much they, they pay me, their friends are like, oh, that seems like a lot. But then when my, when my clients explain what all they're getting with it, their their friends are like, oh, wow. Like, cause they didn't even realize, oh, that comes with coaching. My coach doesn't do half of those things. You know what I mean? So like the, the standard of what coaching looks like in powerlifting has to go up and the, the value has to be there. Otherwise you can't really justify the cost. Cause I mean, I wouldn't pay 200 or $300 for like one week responses or late blocks either. So. 
and the, the problem the problem is too is that that's like a, a double-edged sword right like um you like if if you can't expect to charge that rate then you're not going to have the ability to give that type of service you know mm-hmm. um you you got to be like we we as 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 coaches i mean both of y'all are right we we have that responsibility to push that standard so that people can jump into this and be able to provide a higher level um, of service, uh, you know, because it, the profession will never get to that standard. If, if we don't start that um, we're not, I think, I think I can speak for all of us in saying that we're not involved in powerlifting because we want to be these rich moguls, you know, like we're not doing it for the the money um, we're, we're in it because we love it and we happen to want to make a living doing it. Um, and I think, I think that's the case for so many people. Um, you know, like I, I realize, and I, I don't know about you guys, but this, this weighs on me a lot. Like I, I think about it, um, where as, as coaches who are working with, you know, lucky enough to work with some really, really strong people, like a ton of people would kill to be in our position, right. They would absolutely kill for it. And it just, I think raising prices is probably part of that. It's just, it's a major obstacle right now. Uh, just as not everybody's willing to pay it. Yeah, Wouldn't the biggest challenge yeah. in coaching be the customer base in powerlifting because they just so happen to be not wealthy college kids who are also very jaded and diminish the sport. And don't that's, think it's that's mainly it. who you deal with, Angelo, since your niche is like 17 to 19. But um, isn't the niche of powerlifting 17 through 19? And 17 through 23, isn't it like the powerlifting growth? It's not adults, it's children. That's very true. Like that's, Actually, that's to me, yes. that's, a, that's the customer yeah. base. Like that's the problem. It's like but you want to raise your prices. Why, but that's also... But the, the but that's also why we have broke. different tiers of co- like yeah. we, there's always going to be tiers of coaches that are available to different athletes. And honestly, I mean, one of the things too. Uh, okay, I, I, I'm going to cycle back. Go ahead, Joe. Well, what what I was going to say. So I, I was having this discussion with Johnny Candido um, while he was while he was training at game day. Um, something Candido brought up that I was like, eh, that's kind of a hot take, but it, it sort of makes sense. Um, he was like, he feels like that a, a lot of those individuals that aren't willing to pay those prices probably don't need super high level coaching anyway. Um, but yeah. there seems to be like, right. That there's this culture of like, Oh, I seek coaching out, but then I'm not willing to pay for it, even though like you probably don't need it. So th- I think the shift in the culture um, needs to be that it's okay to not have the ultra super customized programming when you're first starting out, that that's okay. Um, it's, it's okay to run free programs. It's okay to, you know, run for a, or or run like a sort of more hands-off block that isn't as customized. Like that's, that's okay. And that's a part of growing in the sport. Uh, and the fact that you, um, have something that is, is still well-programmed is still like, there's a lot of sound logic behind it. Um, it's something good. Like obviously Steve, like you have your, your free programs, you know, stuff like that, like, like that's, that's okay to run. And it almost feels like, um, because coaching has become so much more popular over the years that there's, there's, it's almost like looked down upon if you are, if you're running these, these free resources, um, just despite having the ability to maybe, you know, pick up a coach, even though you arguably may get more out of it. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's partially on, on, uh, 
partially on the coaches, but I think it's also partially on a lot of like some of these uh like some big name lifters. Like I, I see it all the time when lifters are answering like these QA stuff like that, and they're like, oh, just got into powerlifting, what's your advice? And one of the things they always say is get a coach. And it's like that you can you can pro- like you said run those free programs and stuff like that for quite a bit of time before you might even necessarily need a coach. And I I even say it might be to your advantage. I know for me it's it's way more useful if a client comes to me whether they had a previous coach if they did a previous coach if they have like oh hey here's what I've been doing for the past year or two right it's so much easier to kind of know what I can do with that person versus if oh I've only been lifting for three months probably for three months but I I want to get a coach you know what I mean yeah. and the reason why I say it's also partially on us I don't really mean us because this doesn't really apply to anybody here but a lot of coaches don't put out just good free content or free programs that's that's the thing it's like I, I think I have so many of my client base right now are people where they watch my content and ran my free stuff for years. And then we got to that point where it's like, okay, well, I've taken as far as I can. Let me go to the guy who was giving me this free stuff. You know what I mean? So I think going back kind of to the challenges of full-time coaching, I think it's also finding a way to provide value out to people who aren't your direct clients, yeah. because that is such a big way to market yourself. And I think Cause let's be real, man. It's kind of the, the typical, like, Oh, Hey guys, I'm now taking, you know, to now have open spots or only a couple spots left or whatever. That That's cringe, bro. It's cringe marketing. And I think it very rarely actually works unless you like, unless you're someone like Steve where you literally are capped off and you open up your roster, like once every three years or something like that, then it can work. But I think for a lot of uh, newer coaches, I think it's uh, a challenge they have is finding a way to provide value in a way that's authentic to themselves and actually like works for people because, you know, not everyone, not every coach is going to be good at like doing YouTube, but maybe you find a different way to put out informative content, right? Or you find something that kind of draws people in. So I think the marketing aspect is huge because you can be, you can be a great coach. Like you can have the knowledge, you can be on top of communication, you can be very personable, but if you don't know how to market yourself, it doesn't matter because nobody knows who you are. Right. And obviously as you get your roster bigger, word of mouth spreads and, and, you know, like I always tell people like I, to this day, my biggest source of like, you know, people sending me emails is from people who watch the YouTube channel or from people seeing what my clients are doing. Right. But to even get to that point, you have to either be putting content out or have enough clients who are doing well under you. And that's hard to get to that point if you don't have a way to market yourself. Yep. And two things going off that one straight up, you all, I sure would agree. We've seen a lot of different programs from athletes coming from coaches that are just hot garbage. Like, holy crap, what in the world did this coach have them doing? I am very confident. I'm using my self example. I'm very confident the four free programs I just put out are probably better than about 90% of coaches. And if Absolutely. someone just ran that over and over and over and then went to Joe in like two years, Joe would probably be jumping for joy because like this, I, I've got the exact template of what worked for them. They've already been running something good. Boom. Perfect. I can just kind of keep building off of this. So yeah, but my, my second point, I had basically two points here is one, the cost of coaching. And then two, Marcel, she just touched on it. Being a good coach doesn't mean you're good at marketing and running a business. And that's mm-hmm. where the biggest issue is with people wanting to get into coaching or the fitness industry in general. This is a big issue I had when I was a personal training manager. Um, everyone wants to be a personal training that personal was trainer because they like fitness. It sounds like based on your commercial gym stories, you had a lot more issues than that. Oh, I had, I had a lot of issues, but with <laughs> having good trainers, some fucked up well, I hired happened. well too. I, I was good. I straight up. I was pretty good at hiring trainers. I knew what I was looking for because of this. 
just Steve, because remind you me to ask know you about that later. Okay. Being interested in fitness and wanting to be a personal trainer does not mean you will be good at it because it does not mean you're just, you know how to write a fitness plan. It means that you have to be personal. It needs to be, to be relatable. You need to know how to sell training. Same thing goes for a coach. You can be the world's greatest programmer and have the most uh, highly advanced knowledge in biomechanics. They don't know how to market that. You aren't getting anywhere. I'm going to be, I, I know for a fact, the reason I'm sitting here right now is because I am really good at marketing. I have a really good understanding of what I'm doing. Um, I do it very strategically. I know exactly why I'm doing it. Um, as Angelo says, it's led to arguably me having people share my Instagram posts more than any other coach because it was very strategic of why I was trying to get to that point. Um, because otherwise, I have no reason why I should be talking to you all right now. I'm from Springfield, Missouri, where USAPL doesn't exist and powerlifting is all SPF based. There, there's no strong lifters around me. I don't have any friends around here that are super strong or notable or have any connections. Um, I honestly was really good at marketing myself because of my background and my understanding there. And, and that's where I think a lot of people who get into this think because they, they know what they're doing programming and coaching wise that they automatically are going to be successful. They don't realize you're running your own business. You're an entrepreneur. You have to understand how to actually run market um, and grow a business, which creates the entirety of coaching. Um, and then on top of that, it honestly just takes a little bit of luck too. Um, all three of us have had some luck. If Sean doesn't reach out to me, I still think I get to where I'm at, but it takes a couple extra years. Sean was able to ex expedite that process super quick for me. Joe, you were able to land an internship with TSA. I'm sure you account that for a big expediting of the process of getting where you are. Um, Marcellus, honestly, I mean, you, you can, you can, tell me what you think. How I learned about you was from your past coach, albeit that guy's a douchebag and we don't need to even say his name, but <laughs> I learned about you through him. It got me onto your content because you were a bit lesser known. And then that really helped, I think, to kind of put some limelight on you as being actually the person who was the good coach and not the other person. Yeah, that, that not, I tell people, um, in terms of kind of just getting more known with you, well, shoot, even beyond that, <laughs> a, a big thing that kind of helped me with that initial online coaching clientele before we even got Power Pacific was actually uh, being a pump chaser athlete for Chris Jones and stuff like that. That Chris that, and I Jones, got, bro, I got very lucky with that because literally this was then within my first month of being on YouTube, I, I met him at like a meetup. We we just talked. He, he liked what I had to say. He liked what I said I was going to do on my channel. He told me, hey, here's the address of my gym. Come through sometime. So that helped with that. Um, as far as the powerlifting, I always say, you know, um, the fact that Michael gave me a chance in 2019, that 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 was big. And, you know, um, even though uh, 2019 nationally didn't quite the way we want, that's when a lot of people are like, OK, who is this guy? Right. Like like this, this dude, Michael came in, almost rivaled Taylor, stuff like that. And then, of course, with that, you know, other people came along, Jamar, Ash and Bob, so on and so forth. But. Yeah, like you said, everyone's got – I think that's another thing, too, is, like, you know, you got to have certain skills, like, you got to be personal like that. But I think it's also kind of finding what works for you. Like you said, Steve, you, you're somebody where, like, you know, you know how to make yourself. For me, what I find has helped me a lot with the coaching is the thing that helped me when I did a lot of the in-person training where it's, like, I very much show that I practice what I preach, right? Um, like, you know, no disrespect to me, but it's one of those things where it's, like, I – I have these informative videos, right? Right. I give the information, I give the knowledge, but then I have these training videos where I'm out here, I'm pushing, I'm trying to work just as hard as my clients. Like, I mean, Ashton himself will tell you, he said one of the biggest things that drew uh, him to me as a, as a coach, besides my knowledge is like, he's out here doing it himself. 
So that's something that, you know, I'm big on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The whole lead from the front thing. That's something that pretty much all my, you know, strongest clients, they like that. They like that I'll be in there training with them, pushing it. I'm always trying to grow and get better as a lifter. Um, and, you know, you know, I show off the craftsmanship a little bit, you know what I mean? So that it, it, it helps. It's like, that's kind of what draws people in. And then when they get to know me, it's like, oh, okay, cool. This guy knows what he's talking about. He's personal, he's adaptable, things like that. But um, it's finding a way to market yourself that's, that works for you. I think that's the biggest thing. I've seen so many people, they try to market themselves the exact same way as another coach and it just doesn't work because it's not them. Yeah. I had a, I have, I have a, one of the main coaches who I coach, who I refer to, his name's Peyton. You may have seen me post about Peyton's power and performance. If you've seen that uh, pop up in my story, sometimes Uh, fantastic coach. Um, He started, I've I've really helped him over the last couple of years and he started trying to do some content and it really wasn't catching on. And I kind of told him, I was like, your content isn't bad, but not everyone's meant to make content. Not everyone's mm-hmm. meant to have a YouTube. Not everyone is meant to do Instagram posts um, mm-hmm. for multiple reasons. Like one, one, one of my strengths that I knew one of my strengths is my ability to take complex topics and be able to explain them in, in long form ways, but in very understandable ways. I'm, I'm able to communicate that really well. Not everyone's able to do that. And I told Peyton, I was like, your single biggest strength from knowing you over the last five years is you are one of the most sociable and likable and extroverted people I know. That's not me. I I mean, people listening to this podcast might not think that because I'm loud and obnoxious on here, but I am a big introvert. Like if you put me in a group of people I don't know, I'm just going to sit in the corner and not talk. Um, I'm good on the internet of acting like I'm sociable, but I'm really not. Like it's, it's, it's not my forte to go out to meets and like network with anyone at that meet and talk to them. I told Peyton, that's your ability. You can go out to a power local power thing meet, and you're going to be able to talk to everyone and everyone's going to like you and you're going to stick out and you're going to be like this, this, it's just this people, people want to gravitate towards. So it's like your marketing tactic is you need to go as many meets as possible and go meet everyone. Mm-hmm. Cause if you go do that, I guarantee everyone at that meet's going to know who you are. And then when you go interact with them on Instagram, they're going to remember, Oh, that was Peyton. That dude was so nice at that meet. He was helping me out. I talked to him for like 20 minutes. I was like, you need to understand what your strengths are and leverage those in the sense of your business, not try and copy what I do because I'm good at content creation. Mm-hmm. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll add, I'll add to this thought. Um, besides the, the internship with TSA, uh, I think had I not been lucky enough to get Yangsu Ren assigned to me as my sponsored athlete through TSA, I don't think I'd ever be where I am today. Uh, UU being, you know, my, my athlete at TSA is when things really started to pick up him pulling that, that crazy deadlift at 2017 nationals. That's when my roster started to fill up and I started to get higher and higher quality clients. And it's gone ever since. Um, I think there was another, another wave at uh, 2019 nationals as well. Cause a lot of my guys were in prime time and they all did very, very well. Um, the thing, the thing that I, I would sort of add on to that um, is just a, a lot of people when it comes to marketing themselves, they, they fail to understand the fundamentals of the platforms that they're on. And that is a huge issue with growth. Um, so I've been lucky enough to amass over 260,000 followers on TikTok and love it or hate it. It puts me in front of a lot of people. Um, the only reason that I've been able to build that following and leverage that platform is because I almost obsessively uh, take time to study and understand how that algorithm works. Uh, the same could be said with, with Instagram. Um, you know, I, I took the time to actually figure that out. And I think that's one of the issues that a lot of the 
people that we're probably speaking to right now when it comes to, hey, you're not so great at marketing yourself, uh, could very easily put the time into. It's not that hard to, you know, speak to people who know what they're doing. It's not that hard to, you know, look into how these platforms work and just figure out little things that are going to put you in front of more eyes. Um, the, the more small things that you know about that, the better chance you have of picking up that clientele that you're looking for and the uh, less, less need you're going to have for that story that says five open spots. Yeah. What would you rather have then the innate marketing ability or the, just the, X's and O's coaching side then, if you had to pick one. Or what, like, if you were going to allot skills, which ones would you have, would you allot more skill to? Would it be the marketing or the actual coaching? I want the actual coaching. Yeah. I For feel me like personally, because because you can you can learn the marketing over time. Um, but, like, if you're good at marketing yourself and then you have eyes on you and clients come to you, but <laughs> you suck at the actual coaching, who cares? You just kind of, well, you're going to get noticed. I mean, like, but you say I'm, who cares? I'm going to play but... devil's advocate. <laughs> but you say who cares? I'm going to play okay. devil's advocate. I think, okay. Uh, I think Angela might have led to this, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to say there's a lot of really crappy coaches yeah, exactly. who are incredibly popular because they're really good at marketing. And this goes back to being a personal trainer too. I had a lot of, I, I, there's a lot of people who make me, I was a, not a good personal trainer. That was, I was not good at actually personal training. I was good as a personal training manager and I'm good as a powerlifting coach. Personal training, I was not great at because my skill set did not leverage well to that. I think now I, I'm trying to think of examples, but I can think of a lot more examples of crappy coaches who knew how to market themselves that are really successful right now than really, really, really good coaches who have no idea how to market themselves that are really successful right now. So now, this, it depends true. on how you gauge success. Cause my thing is I'm not looking at it as just being known and making money. I want to actually be good at the service I'm providing. You can't That's be good at the service you're providing if you're not making money to keep doing it though. That's fair. Yeah. But okay. I, but here's my thing. I feel like, okay, for example, like Michael, right? Michael gave me that chance and that help. The reason why that happened is because he saw the dedication, the way I was going about things with the clients I already had who weren't super strong or weren't super well-known and that's kind of what drew him in, right? And then from that, it's like, oh, he can do well with higher advanced level lifters too. I feel like, I feel like that's because no you were what, good at marketing. In what way? You were already good at it. You knew how to market yourself. You had a well-established YouTube channel. You knew how to portray yourself on social media. I'm talking a person who has no marketing capabilities yet is an incredible coach. That I wouldn't say that's you. You had it. You just like me, even before Sean, I had good marketing abilities. It's just that Sean expedited the process and Michael expedited the process for you. You still like good marketing abilities. I'm saying zero. You were terrible at it, which is a lot of coaches. Mm. I don't think you'd be here right now. And you probably would have had to shift into something else. I, no, I, I play devil's advocate because I, I don't disagree with you because I hate the marketing gurus who are crappy coaches. That is terrible. Well, that's my thing. Like, 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 I, it definitely takes both. But I guess my thing is if I had to have one innately, I feel like once again, you can learn the marketing skills. I feel like, I feel like, I don't want to say it's so much easier to learn, but so, I don't not know. Not to I feel switch like, sides completely, but I do feel like, like we also over time have learned how we need to be good, effective coaches, you know, yeah, I'm, like you can definitely learn those things. I feel like, I mean, I feel like we're still all in our, our journey learning 
new things about the way that we need to coach people every single day. And that, that changes up a ton. Um, I don't know. I feel like, I also feel like there's, there's kind of more to learn when it comes to coaching too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's my whole point, right? It's like, it's like, it's not one or the other. It's which would you want more innate, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah I, feel, sure. I feel like I'd rather have the coaching skills, the knowing how to be personable, adapt to clients, all that type of stuff. And then kind of learn how to market myself based off of those skills versus, okay, I'm good at marketing, but I have no innate skills with coaching. You know yeah. what I mean? If I had to choose one. Basically. That's fair. And then also, like Steve said, I I absolutely hate the people where it's like, you know, they're known, they're famous, blah, blah, but they're shit coaches. I hate that. And the fact is, if I was really good at, if I was just solely good at marketing and a terrible coach, I wouldn't be a powerlifting coach. I'd be, I'd be opening up multiple group training locations and marketing those and making a buttload off of Orange Theory Fitness S 500 square foot locations with 500 members charging a hundred dollars person because mm-hmm. that, uh, that's my thing dude if, if i'm a name good at marketing <laughs> if i'm a name good at marketing i'm not going to be in power lifting i'm going to do something where i can make millions <laughs> that's fair yeah it, that's I, I, I view it though just like is the opinion of who's a good coach in the like, it's like beauty is beauty in the eye of the beholder right because there's people who are considered good coaches who aren't that's just because those people have never actually had a good coach. They don't know any better. But it's they're considered. Who are those coaches, Angelo? There's a few that come to mind. But there's some coaches. Every, everyone in the stories. Everyone in the stories wants to know. They want that list. Well, actually, well, all right, yeah, that list. They, that we're talking I feel about, like you get asked that all the time. I dude. do. Well, yeah. What coaches would you recommend? I'm like, there's there's too many to mention that I'm gonna add. Like, I would have to have like a twenty. I can't even tag as many people I want in a story of who's a good powerlifting coach to get because there's a lot of them. But it's like there, you can go about your entire powerlifting journey being considered a good coach when in reality you're not, but people label you as a good coach. Yeah. So that's marketing right there. And it's like you yeah. people in the know may know that you're not a good coach and this person's not a good coach, but, you know, it's a – yeah, that's how. Yeah, how it if, works. If, if my goal is just if my goal is just to make as much money as possible, then I'm definitely going the innate marketing route. But if my goal is to like be able to look myself in the mirror and be proud of the work I'm doing, then you know. But there's yeah, people we can, who we do can that go back and forth. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying there's people who do that. There's people who who do look themselves in the mirror and be like, "Man, I'm a good fucking coach." And then those people <laughs> need the rope. If if you'll all do it. I'll I'll do a name and we'll do a rap, we'll go around and each say a name. This is what the two white listeners want. Oh this no, is, let's yeah. let's. Well, this I'll is... say it. In, I'll do it anyways. Oh no. All right, do oh, go for Steve it. Wants, Steve mic, wants to mic. burn. Yeah, Steve wants to burn bridges. I, I know. You, I know you guys. Are, I know you guys are. Gonna, this isn't gonna burn a single bridge. This bridge is burned. Is it Joe Sullivan? Uh, no. Okay. That would oh, actually. Well. That would, I'd actually <laughs> consider Joe above this. Um. Who uses a meme page to solely fund their coaching business because their coaching business is absolute garbage? Uh, I'll, I'll agree with this one. I don't Mark remember. Mark Doherty. Yeah. What's his name? Mark Doherty. Okay, no one I, knows his name. Exactly. They just like, know I him as certified personal truth because he uses his 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 meme account. Oh, to okay. I was like, somehow. I'll the fucking back. Exactly. He uses that to good. Yeah. He even started like a page on it's, top of it that tried. I don't know. He made a second meme page that tried to be more coaching. Yeah. Well, serious. he deleted my. He, com- he solely- yeah, he deleted my comments. So that uh, that is like sh- ultimate shame upon a meme page. So I don't even respect him as a meme page and a coach. 
You delete my comment off a fucking meme page? You're the worst human. Well, ever. Honestly, his coaching page is his coaching page is funnier than his meme page because he does a really good job of acting like he's an actual coach. Like the amount of effort he puts into acting like he's a coach is honestly hilarious. Yeah, I the the thing I stay away from because I mean those of you like who listen to Two White Lights and view my stories, you know that I get that question a lot. Like who who should I get as a coach? And it's it's much easier to say who shouldn't you get as a coach. But it's one of those things, I think that's like almost the untouchable thing of powerlifting, is you just don't try to fuck with someone's living. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just the thing like you can't do. And I like, I'll steer you in directions. I'll tell you, I'll give you my honest opinion on people, but it's got to be done in private. It's just got to be done in private because fuck. Like, Barring you openly try and screw with us, a.k.a. Exactly. I was like, I'm not going to lie, bro. I've done a couple times because if you. You come after me, bro. It's over. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I don't, yeah. Jared, like, Jared Maynard trying to fish in my D in my client's DMs. Yeah. I mean, like, I agree, Angelo. You don't say anything, but if you if you come at stuff and you start doing sketchy stuff, you get called out. Yeah, I guess it hasn't oh, happened yeah. yet with shut, me. Shout but, out CT Whitney. But ooh. <laughs> well, in uh, my client's DMs all the time. Yeah. Ooh. All right. See, I guess I gotta be a coach in order for you to have that. But I mean, to your point, Marcellus, Brandon. Brandon Teets was the only person to no show an interview on two white lights in its history. So he isn't an enemy. I didn't know he was ever invited. He was, uh, he was, it was before Marcellus ended his career. And I think that's why he didn't come on the podcast because I didn't know what was going on between, I, I had no fucking idea like what was happening. So I'm like, we had to reschedule a week later. I'm like, okay, cool. Whatever. I'm, I'm totally fine with rescheduling a week later. And then the time comes and his, his Instagram is gone. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, I don't know how to well, get fun in touch story, with this guy. <laughs> Marcellus knows this, but Joe and, and uh, Angela, I don't think, know. I was supposed to work with Brendan. Yeah, I he think was you supposed told me. to coach me. Yeah. We, had, we had our initial consult, whole video chat and everything. I sent him all my stuff. He said, okay, a couple days, I'm going to send your program over. And then like a couple of days later, he texts me. He's like, honestly, I really think, cause this is, I was, I was very injured at this point. Like I, I could not actually perform a squat without pain. And he's like, I really think you should probably work with Quinn Hinnock first. Um, and then I'll be there every step of the way. We'll, we'll, we'll collaborate on this. And then as soon as you're feeling good, we'll, we'll shift over and I'll be coaching you. So I was like, okay. And I worked with Quinn, which was a great thing I did. Working with Quinn was a fantastic choice. That was the last time I ever heard from Brendan. He never responded to another message. Well, also, Joe's damn. I guess there's a trend there. Um, but Joe is going to say though, um, if, if CT Whitney tries to find this podcast, he won't be able to because he still think it's called Three Way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you won't even know which we're on. So it's fine. He's going to be searching for Three Way Lights, and he, he's not going to find it. But um, yeah. and you know what all the right. funny thing is? I of kinda... all the great things that were said in this podcast, this is probably going to get the highest rating. Like this area. Oh, yeah. well, that's right why here. I went there. I, I did this strategically because of marketing, because we, we got to end on some fun stuff because well, this is what will actually get uh, some virility to it. But we'll, we'll do one more for fun. Cause this will kind of lead, because I think we're going on over and out well, over. So one more, and this kind of goes with the same topic of like, let's create a little tension, have some fun. Number one trend you see in powerlifting that you wish would just die. Anything wheeze does. Oh Lord. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> no. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> okay.
Please, Angela. Angela said it. No one else. Don't oh cancel us. no! Oh no! Uh, we were talking um, about it in a group chat, so it's fine. But <laughs> we can talk. Yeah, coaching perspective. From from a coaching perspective, um, I think I don't know if I can necessarily call. Yeah, I guess I would call it a trend. Um, everybody constantly wanting to copy the training of their idol. Like I see that all the time. I'll I'll you know, some of my lifters that I work with, they'll like send me a post from, you know, I don't know. They'll send me one of Angelo's posts and they'll be like, you know, why am I not doing a single and then a triple? And then this, this sort of thing, or, or why, why don't I get singles year round? That sort of deal that I don't know if that's even a trend, but just that just needs to die. Uh, you, you are, I am coaching you for a reason. I'm, I'm not trying to just hand you Angelo Fortino's, uh, training for it, you know, and, and that's not automatically going to get you strong, but if you guys want to deadlift like Angelo Fortino, that program is coming soon. Yeah. Yeah. Work back around Shameless there. So I, was, I was about to say like, you might want to rephrase that if we're going <laughs> to release. <laughs> you, you get the point though. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know if that's a, no, trend, that makes sense. Uh, like, no, it is. It is. It is. And they, they emulate people. And I've seen that. I mean, I guess this is stuff that I can speak on just like following the trends in powerlifting. People do that and they come out with like, well, Atwood doesn't like, please don't do that. Please don't compare yourself to Atwood. Please find different information because there's other information will make you a better powerlifter than following what Taylor Atwood does. I, I guarantee yeah. you. Taylor Edwards, Taylor Edwards for a reason. He's one of a kind. I would argue that the reason people seek out coaches is because they're at the point where they could be considered an outlier, you know, for what, whatever point in, in their training they are, whether it's, you know, their level of advancement, the, their current rate of progression, whatever, they're an outlier in some way. And that is why you need a coach. Um, so therefore I cannot just give you this training program because Austin Perkins does it and you're automatically going to get strong. You might, but you also might get very injured. Mm -hmm. It's that's just not how it works. How about you, Marcellus? Friends want to see die. Um, weighted dips. Doing weighted dips. Yeah, just because ah! some people <laughs> post about it, and then everyone's got to do it. I mean, you you reach the pinnacle. Cool. You reach the pinnacle. Russ I'm cool. posted and tagged you. It's like, does it get any higher than that? Yeah, I'm cool with it, bro. When I saw that, I was like, hey. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that really, because me, me and Marcellus have been having a friendly battle of like who, who's pushing weighted dips the most. And I just, I lost. Once Russ tagged Marcellus, I'm like, done. I got it. It's done. It. Yeah. Marcellus got it. OG weighted calisthenics, you know. <laughs> I said this in the group chat, but the amount of money that you guys have made rogue from the the dip attachments sold in the last, <laughs> yeah, weight, in the last weight belts and, yeah, weight belts and dip attachments. Like, that's been the big nothing can compare to Sean and Chance getting everyone to buy a pit shark though. Mm. Because dip attachment, yeah. what like 50 to 100 bucks, pit shark four grand. I guess, I mean, I'm... going back to like what I said, like it's like anything that Sean does too. Like every time I see it, like, oh, Sean does Larson presses. Can't wait to see everyone do Larson presses. Yeah. Mixed script was cool for two weeks there. We finally, <laughs> finally, finally mixed grip was cool and people listened to us for two weeks. And yeah, over. I, yeah, no, I was, I was personally offended that I'm like, oh, okay. I guess when the guy who doesn't deadlift as much as me does mixed grip, 
Everyone's going to follow that trend. I was offended. I was like, I did mix grip and pulled for the fucking lead. And no one followed that trend. When the guy goes to hook grip, they mix grip. That, that infuriated me. And that's, I feel like it's time to that's power come lifting. out of that's power, post. That's, yeah, that's powerlifting. That's powerlifting fandom. That is true. I think uh, I think for me, man, there's a couple, but I'm gonna say powerlifters doing like these reels that make it seem like uh, like powerlifting is do or die, like it's life or death, and they're 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 just such badasses because they're getting through these tra- these these two three hour training sessions and AC that they're choosing to do. Um, <laughs> I'm tired of it, bro. It's not that deep. It's not that hard. It might like I love powerlifting. I love training hard. I make a full time off the shit, but bro, I'm sorry. Like half these people have not played a real fucking sport. It's not that damn hard. Like it, it's not motivating. I watch it. I'm like, bro, like, wh- like, why are you acting like you squatting 315 was like it's everything. Like this was everything. It's reserved to the lifters who are novice, though, right? I would say yeah, it, a novice intermediate. Do advanced lifters do that? Is there a market? I mean, do I need an example? Well, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't. I don't know. I don't know any advanced lifters that really do that. Like, there's advanced lifters that show like, oh hey, I take my training very seriously, or hey, like you know, this is like my sport, blah, blah. But I don't know anyone who are acting just like like made it through the day, made it through my set. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's stop. Okay. It's not. It's not that hard. It's not that deep. And no one's making you do it. Okay. You get to do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's and then I mean really just the whole cringe, cringe TikTok thing in general with powerlifting is getting kind of kind of wild for me, bro. Like like power to you, Joe, for being on it, bro. But I would never. Uh dude, <laughs> it's I'll be I'll be a hundred percent honest. Like it's the platform, especially now, just like it's it's exhausting. You you just like you see so much crap all the time and it's just like you look at it and it's like oh 100k likes and it's someone like just peddling the most bullshit like 2002 information about like the dumbest topics and it'll get hundreds of thousands of views but then you know the moment you put out like any good information it's just like oh sweet i spent a half hour on that video and oh look at that wow 100 views yeah yeah that's another trend, though. People put, putting out wild, obscene type of content to to get their following up, and then they go to actual normal content that makes sense to kind of maintain it. Yep. Yep. I, I went through like four or five different ones, and three of those was going to get me canceled. Um, so, so I'm going to go with. I've already I've already uh, ranted about this on uh, the podcast already, um, but the French low bar position. Oh god! Is that really a trend that anyone else is doing aside from French lifters? The French low bar position—it's gonna—it's gonna start catching on. I guarantee it. I've had three lifters that are like, "Hey, here's here's panache. Should I I lower my uh my low bar?" I'm like, "No." It's gonna it's it's getting to where every French lifter is doing it, and it's getting even more pronounced to where they're having like it's 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 because it's become it's become increasingly obvious. Uh, like Tiffany Chapone has gotten, it's been obvious that hers has gotten exponentially more. Even Panos has got exponentially more. It's going to start catching on in the U S and start happening. And then it's going to be bad. And I'm going to lose my mind. Oh, I can't uh, wait to, I still I don't wait how it, I still don't get how it's legal. Well, for a lot of people they're getting, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I've seen a, a few people like get, uh, replace commands because they're, they're not upright enough. That was one guy, one Mexican lifter at, uh, at IPF Junior Worlds, got a or he was a, might have been a sub junior, but um, 
Yeah, you got to replace it, it's command. It's so subjective. Like he got it, but then other people didn't. Yeah. As well as the fact that like the the I don't know I I think USAPL has, still has the same rule because they just took the IPF rule book and are still using it for the most part. But it just says the bar has to be across your shoulders. Right. That's that's really subjective of what is the shoulder. Um, and I don't think it, like in USPA, it actually says it has to be above or on the rear delt. It can't be below it. I believe that actually states in the USPA rule book. So yes, I'm going to go with that. That, that one to die. So probably a good answer. Um, who's, who's that one lifter that uh, he he's from Japan. He like consistently squats high in training and then somehow manages to like get Yoshi, down there. Yoshi hero. Yeah. He does yeah. it too. Super, yeah. super, super low, low bar. Yeah. Cool. Cause you're going to have, it's just like a high arch bench. You're going to run into issues usually with depth with most of those people um with a lot of them which is what he has but um it's working for others so if you got a squatty build you could probably you probably get away with that a little bit easier because you won't have as much torso angle fold well one trend i hope continues is people using obsidian ammonia smelling salts go to hypedust.com use promo code 2wl15 to use to get the best smelling salts in powerlifting it ranges it gets from mild to absolute nose hair burning off of you while you take a sniff of it use that promo code 2015 to get yourself the best smelling salts in powerlifting get yourself hyped for a lift get yourself hyped for a workout hopefully all gym owners buy just multiple obsidian ammonia smelling salts and use it for your personal use as well it's always good sign game day barbell yeah it's always good sign when i see that hype dust in the chalk bowl always a good sign i'm like oh this is a good gym this is a certified gym if you have that obsidian ammonia smelling salt remember to promo code two WL fifteen, but um, Angel, I, this, this this has to be like the best transitions you've done into your advertisements in the past like five episodes. Bro. Yeah, honestly, because like, because man, I'm not gonna lie, it's been painful the yep. past few episodes, man. It's hard to find. It's hard to find a good transition when Steve's talking about like people jerk off with wet wipes. And, and who, like I can't. It's hard to do. We do we do we? Are we ending with a commercial gym story? All right, I'm do getting a lot of. All right, Steve. I'm just. I'm getting a lot of people who are getting borderline horrified of these stories. Like, we might have to take a break <laughs> and then revisit it one day. I've told most of the craziest ones. The I, I okay. think it it calms down to some some simpler ones. I've got I, here. I've got a non horrific one today. How long? We'll is end it? on this. How long is it? Two minutes, maybe. All right, cool. Because we're, we're almost at the 90-minute okay. mark. I want to nail it. Yeah. There's a dude that's always in the gym. He always wore, like, like a uh, a bicyclist outfit, like that little, like, those tight, those short tights, and then the, the like, the, the that shirt that all, like, cyclists use, like, yeah. actual, like, competitive the, cyclists. The, he always wore that in the gym. Drives a 10-speed everywhere guy? Rides a 10-speed everywhere guy? Yeah. Yeah. Either way, he always did super weird stuff in the gym. It, it was nonstop, but whatever. People do weird stuff. There was one day, though, I'm sitting there training a client, and I also manage this gym, so I'm kind of in charge of if something weird is going on. And I start seeing him moving treadmills. Yes. And rather than stop, I was like, I want to see where this goes. <laughs> he starts moving the treadmills, like all of them, and they're heavy all by himself. He creates a circular running track and starts running around the treadmills for the next 20 minutes. That guy's my hero. That is that is the <laughs> best thing to do ever at a gym. I look and up to a lot of these people. Someone overnight 
this goes with it because it's a short one too. No, I have no idea who did this. Someone overnight, because the gym was 24 hours, uh, apparently got annoyed that the Smith machine faced away from the uh, mirrors. They flipped it around. That Smith machine had to weigh a thousand pounds. Probably four people had to do it. They flipped the Smith machine around so they could see themselves in the mirror while lifting. I love the dedication. I you might feel you might think of these people as weird, but I'm actually admirable of the one the dedication <laughs> and two just the sheer determination of this. You know, making making the gym your home, doing what you want. You're paying a membership. Goddamn right that Smith machine's gonna face the mirror, and you want to have a circular track so you can run it. This that that is awesome to me. Guy running in circles on a treadmill, I I would not even yeah. penalize him for that. Not punish him. Don't do anything to the gym membership. Don't find him. Don't do anything. That's he deserves to do whatever he wants to do. I I, I have a quick story in that same vein. Uh, so they bolt they bolted down the benches at my university gym because of me because they were all too, I was training for 2015 raw nationals and they were all too low compared to combo rack heights. And I would put plates under them to boost it up to comp. Cause you know, this is back when I was like pretentious and I need to train on super optimal conditions all the time. And, and legitimately the amount of times that I did it and the staff would like come over every time and just be like, Hey, you, you can't do this. And I'd be like, why? And they'd be like, good point. And uh, yeah, I come in one day and they're all bolts down. All right. Well, hey, real quick, Steve, I, I got a quick, I got a quick question. I, I know the answer for Joe already, but the, these people in these stories, Steve, were they all of the uh, Caucasian nature? Not all of them. No. You're gonna have. I mean, I did, I did, yeah, no. If you're looking last, for last one, wasn't. If you're looking. <laughs> if you're looking for some, yeah. I'm trying to say only white people crazy. I, I was gonna oh, say no. everyone just... was cra- everyone was crazy. So right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying racist free story, but these are definitely divvied out. I, I can think back to the stories. We are covering white, we are covering black, we are covering Asian, and we are covering Indian with, uh, within all these stories. There, there is every, No one is excluded with the, the craziness I saw at commercial gyms. Yeah, two white lights, we spread that out, okay? We spread it out on two white lights. <laughs> Mar- Marcellus, the- did that sound like some, uh, some WPS to you? Absolutely, bro. <laughs> <laughs> bro I'm, I'm there to lift, not <laughs> shit around. <What>? Yeah. <laughs> It's all yeah. <laughs> if that's gonna be the tagline to the episode, we we spread we spread it out evenly on two white lights amongst the races. So everybody, <laughs> every, everybody can get it right. Yeah, just you know, <laughs> we just gotta make sure you're in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that shit in. I don't give a fuck. All right, so. <laughs> Big weekend for two white lights. We have the Texas Barbell Syndicate um, primetime meet and uh, the open this Saturday. We'll be commentating both sessions. Marcellus Williams, you'll have your sister competing at that. We can't wait to see her compete. Um, and also all the other competitors. Make sure you guys are um, listening, if you haven't yet, to the preview episode that we recorded. Also, we do have the Corrupted Summit as well on Sunday. So a lot to get excited about. We will be selling merchandise there as well. So we got that cleared. We are good to go. If you guys go to that Corrupted Summit, if you're a fan of Two White Lights, you will get perhaps a first look or first dibs on the Steve Denobi After Dark shirt and a Two White Lights PRC. City shirt are only two drops that we haven't got to yet. We see you guys next week. Peace.